In the next few recordings, we're going to learn through some of the pieces of Reb Moshe Soloveitchik, which are collected in the Sefer Kovetz Chidushe Torah of Reb Moshe and Reb Yosef Dov Soloveitchik. So this is a very important Sefer because not much of Reb Moshe Soloveitchik's Torah has been published. In general, the major brisker figures like Reb Chaim and Reb Velvel and Reb Yosef Dov, to some degree, were all very hesitant to publish. So Reb Chaim and Reb Velvel each prepared one major manuscript manuscript on the Rambam, which was published after they died. And then after that, a lot of their students and other people collected a lot of their Torah and started publishing all sorts of Svarim. So Reb Moshe, in line with that, also did not really publish, but he didn't even prepare a Sefer on the Rambam. So we don't even have that from him. And due to his career, he didn't have as many students, so there wasn't as much of his Torah recorded. So Kovetz Chidushe Torah is an important collection of various articles and Chidushe that Reb Moshe wrote, which was prepared with Reb Yosef Dov's approval. And it gives us a sense for Reb Moshe's learning style, as well as Reb Yosef Dov's early brisker method when he was still in line more with Reb Chaim's methodology before he got older and developed his own twist. So that's the importance of this Sefer, and we'll go through Reb Moshe's pieces. Now, in recent years, there is more of Reb Moshe's Torah, which is being published. There's a Sefer, Chidushe Hagram Halei, on the Rambam, and another Sefer of Chidushe Hagram Hagrid, which is also structured on the Rambam, and it has ideas of Reb Moshe and Reb Yosef Dov back and forth. They were very close, and Reb Moshe was Reb Yosef Dov's primary and almost only Rebbe. So he raised Reb Yosef Dov to be what he was. Now, even though Reb Moshe did not publish very much, and he's not as well known as some of the other figures in his family, but he was a great Talmud Chacham, and he was very much part of the tradition of brisk. So in Chidushe Maron Riz HaLevi, Reb Velvel does not quote any contemporaries by name, even though he refers anonymously a few times to discussing this topic with someone, but he doesn't quote anyone by name except family members, which are his father, Reb Chaim, and his brother, Reb Moshe. So a few times he quotes Hagram HaLevi. So Reb Moshe was a very significant figure in brisk, and even more interestingly, Reb Aaron Leib Steinman in the Sefer Ele on the Torah of Brisk, and Rav Steinman grew up in Brisk, so he knows a lot of traditions about the Soloveitchiks and Brisk. On page 67, he says that Rab Simcha Zelig, the Dayan of Brisk and a very close associate of Rab Chaim, told him that Reb Moshe is a greater Mechadesh than Reb Velvel. His Chidushim have more creativity, even though Reb Velvel is greater overall. So this is a very interesting assessment because as we'll see, Reb Moshe's Chidushim are more creative than the type of Chidushim Reb Velvel has. In that sense, he's more like his father, Reb Chaim. The hallmark of Reb Velvel's Chidushim is how solid they are. You almost can't question anything Reb Velvel says because he proves each step so solidly. As opposed to Rab Chaim, where there's more creativity and there's more room to question what he's saying, but it's his own personal perspective. So in that sense, Rab Moshe is more in line with his father, Rab Chaim, and he was a great mechadish. He had all sorts of chidushim, even though many of them did not survive, but he had a very creative way of analyzing halachas. So in these pieces, we'll get a sense for Rab Moshe's chidushim and his twist on the brisker methodology. Now, it's worth saying something historically about Rab Moshe, because again, he's not as well known as his father and his brother and his son, but he was a very interesting person historically. There is a memoir from his daughter, Shulamit Meiselman, called The Soloveitchik Heritage, where she discusses growing
growing up in Reb Moshe's home and her parents, and she gives some very interesting information about the direction of Reb Moshe's life. He began a journey in a different direction from his father and his brother, who were much more to the right, and Reb Moshe married a woman who was a little more worldly and tolerant, and he began taking his family in that direction, and his children ended up very much in that direction, including his sons, Reb Yosef Dov and Reb Aaron, but his other kids were also very successful and comfortable in America. So Reb Moshe had an interesting life and some challenges dealing with the changes that he was experiencing. He ended up a Rosh Yeshiva in Tech Kamuni, which was the Zionist Yeshiva in Warsaw. So that was an unusual career step for a son of Reb Chaim. And there was a lot of tension with that. Even though another student of Reb Chaim had already gone down that route, the Mechater Eloy, who also was somewhat connected with the Zionist movement. And the Mechater then went to New York to be a Rosh Yeshiva and the forerunner of YU. And Reb Moshe shortly thereafter followed him when the Mechater died young. And Reb Moshe also passed away somewhat young. So in many ways, he was following the Mechater's path. The Mechater already took the brisker tradition and took it in a more worldly, open way. And Reb Moshe Soloveitchik followed down that route. So he was a very interesting person. There were two very significant articles giving perspective on Reb Moshe's life in the Hakira Journal in volume 25 and 26 from Moshe Fus and Yaakov Sasson. And each of those articles provides very interesting archival information about Reb Moshe and gives good perspective on his overall life. Basically, they analyze his leadership style and like all Soloveitchiks, he was very independent and that led him sometimes to get into arguments with other Torah leaders, but he had a very strong independent streak and he very much did what he thought was right and what needed to be done without worrying very much what other people thought. And like his brother, he was very much connected to his father's legacy and that was his guiding principles in his life. Now, Reb Moshe's son, Reb Yosef Dov, had a unique skill in being able to sum people up and give a sense, a very vivid description of who a person was. So he does that in his descriptions of his grandfather, in his eulogy for his uncle, Reb Velvel, and in his eulogy for other major figures. So he has a passage where he discusses his father, which does an unbelievable job bringing his father to life. And it's also an amazing religious lesson. This is on page 174 of a Sefer, Divrei Hagos V'Ha'aracha which has some of Rabbi Yosef Dov's philosophical ideas. So he discusses his father's silence. The briskers in general were not as emotive. They didn't wear their feelings and emotions on their sleeves like many people do nowadays, but they kept their emotions bottled up and they didn't express them. So Rabbi Yosef Dov, even though he had a little bit of a different style in that regard, but he has an amazing defense of the brisker lack of emotions. And characteristically, Rabbi Yosef Dov turns this into an amazing life lesson. He writes, That even as a child, he was taught from his earliest years not to let out his emotions and not to express them. And then he quotes that his father would say, The more holy and sanctified something is and the more intimate it is, it needs to be buried even more deeply. So the more holy and the more intimate and private and emotional something is, the less it should be expressed 
and the more it should be held inside. And this is an amazing idea because he's saying that when we express and let out all our emotions, it weakens it. The way to properly experience it and to have the full emotional experience of life or religion or a relationship with something is to keep it bottled up. And then Rabbi Yosef Dov tells about his father that he never kissed him. And when they would say bye to each other, his father would basically shake his hand and say, goodbye to you, good luck. So his father never showed emotions. And Rabbi Yosef Dov says that anyone looking from the outside in would have thought that Rabbi Moshe had no emotions, that he wasn't that loving towards his son. But as his son, he says, kol havayoso, his whole being, cholas avahaisa, was lovesick for me. And he says that he cared so much about his family and his children, and he had this overpowering, overwhelming love for them that they experienced. And that's precisely why Rabbi Moshe did not want to let it out with little kisses to the children or little gestures of love because he didn't want to weaken the tremendous love that he felt for them. So this is an incredible insight because very often we do evaluate emotions by how much people let them out. So we do try to always show our love, especially for children with little small gestures. And nowadays that's probably important. Reb Moshe's style would probably not be that effective nowadays, especially with little children. But Reb Yosef Dov's insight into his father is a very powerful one. When people just keep chatting on and on about their religious convictions, their beliefs, their love of God, their love of their family, it weakens all those emotions. And part of being a human being is not being able to share the deepest convictions and the deepest beliefs and feelings that we have. They have to stay bottled up on some level and that's what makes them powerful. If we just wear everything on our sleeves and let it all out so it weakens all of those emotions. So this is an incredible incredible insight into Reb Moshe and his tremendous love for his son and his family and his powerful emotions and how he kept them bottled up and expressed them in a very internalized way without letting them out. And probably a lot of this insight applies to many of the brisker figures. Reb Chaim was a much less formal type of person, but his sons were much more formal. And in general, this is a very powerful life insight for relationships with people and especially on a religious level for some of the emotions that we have towards God and the experience of loving God and feeling connected to God that very often can't be expressed in words, but that makes them all the more powerful. So in this recording, we're going to look at the first piece in Kovetz Chidushe Torah, which is on the issue of Ger Mevi Vekore, whether a convert can bring the Bikurim and recite the Psukim in the Torah upon bringing the Bikurim. So we'll see what some of the issues are and Reb Moshe's analysis of it. Now, this article appeared in the Hapardes Torah Journal, and Reb Yosef Dov has a little footnote saying that it was published under the name of Reb Chaim, but that he believes it came from his father, not from Reb Chaim. So that's why it's included in this Sefer under Reb Moshe's Chidushim. The Rambam in Hilchus Bikurim, Dalit Gimel, writes, Hager Mevi Vekore. A convert is able to bring Bikurim and read the Psukim in the Torah. Shinemar Avraham Av Hamon Goyim Nisaticha. Because Avraham is the father of many nations. So that includes converts. So even though some of the Psukim talk about our ancestor Avraham and the convert is not descended from Avraham, but since Avraham is the father of many nations, so he's the metaphorical ancestor of the convert as well, so the convert is able to recite those psukim calling Avraham his father. 
So the source for this halacha is the Mishnah in Bikurim Aleph Dalid, which rules Hager Mevi Ve'eno Korei. According to the Mishnah, the Ger should not read the Psukim. She'eno Yacholomar She'nishba Hashem Lavoseinu Laseis Lanu. Because the Ger can't recite the Pasuk that Hashem promised to give this land of Israel to our ancestors, because again, those are not his ancestors. So he should not read those Psukim according to the Mishnah. Now, if his mother was Jewish, so then he could read it and recite the psukim, even though his father is a non-Jew. Now, the Yushalmi quotes that Rabbi Yehuda disagrees with this, and he says that a ger could read the psukim because of Av Hamon Goyim Nesaticha. Hashem told Avraham that he would be the ancestor of many nations, so that includes non-biological descendants as well. And Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi rules like Rabbi Yehuda, and that's how the Rambam also rules. So that's the source for the Rambam's ruling. But the question is that the whole discussion centers on the issue of saying Lavoseinu, that Israel was given to our ancestors, even though the Ger is not descended from them. But there seems to be a much more basic problem. A Ger does not inherit the land of Israel because he doesn't come from family who inherited the land originally. And anyone who doesn't own a portion of Israel cannot read the Psukim as the next Mishnah says, Ha'aputropus v'ashliach v'ha'eved v'ha'isha v'tumtum v'androginos, a whole list of people who don't own land in Israel. So someone who's taking care of a farm but doesn't own it, or a messenger to bring the Bikurim, or a slave, or a woman, or someone whose gender is unclear. So all these people do not inherit land of Israel, so they bring Bikurim, but they can't read the Psukim, because they can't say the Pasuk Hashem, Hashem, that you gave me land, Hashem. So why is the Mishnah focusing on the Lavoseinu, whether the Ger could say that Hashem gave the land to their ancestors? What about the problem that they themselves did not inherit land? And likewise, at the end of the Mishnah, it says that someone whose mother is Jewish and father is not could bring the Bikurim and read the Psukim. But if their father's not Jewish, so they're not inheriting the land. So we're back to the same problem. How are they reading the Psukim when they don't own land? And same issue comes up in Rabbi Yehuda's view that a ger could read the psukim because Avhamon Goyim, Avraham is metaphorically his ancestor. But even if that's the case, how can he read the psukim when he doesn't own land? It's certainly no better than a woman who certainly is descended from Avraham, but she still doesn't say the psukim because she doesn't inherit land. So why is the ger reciting the psukim? So there is an approach to answer all these questions in the Tosefta, which is also quoted by the commentators in the Yerushalmi, in the Tosfos, and in the Rash in his commentary on this Mishnah, which is that there was one non-Jewish nation which did inherit land of Israel, the Cani. That group, even though they were non-Jews, did get land in Israel. They did not get driven out. And there were Cani people who were living in the land the whole period of the Tanakh. So those people actually did inherit land of Israel, even though they were not Jewish. So the Mishnah could be talking about a convert from the nation of Cani, where he did inherit land. The only issue is whether he can say Avoseinu. So that's a debate between Rabbi Yehuda and the Tanakama, whether such a convert is considered a descendant of Avraham. But there is no issue in terms of inheriting land. On that level, he is better than a Jewish woman who does not inherit land, whereas the Cani do inherit land. So if the Mishnah is only talking about Gerim from the nation of Cani, 
then it all makes sense, the whole discussion. But it would mean a regular convert from a regular nation certainly does not recite the psukim. So that's one standard way to understand this Mishnah. But Reb Moshe points out that this is not going to work in the Rambam because the Rambam just quotes this halacha as a blanket rule about all converts. He does not limit it only to Kani converts. So it sounds like any convert is able to bring the Bikurim and read the Psukim. So according to the Rambam, we have to understand how this is going to work when it's not limited only to Kani converts. And Reb Moshe adds that there's another problem here. The Mishnah in Meiser Shani, Hey Yudalid, talks about the Vidui of Meiser Shani, which is very similar to the Psukim of Bikurim. When the person brought their first fruits, they recited a few Psukim. And likewise, when they ate Meiser Shani, the produce that had to be eaten in Yerushalayim, so there were also psukim that they would recite, and it has the same language about the land that Hashem gave us and our ancestors. So it has all the same problems that only someone who owns land and is descended from Avraham should be able to recite it. So the vidui of Meiser and the psukim of Bikurim should be parallels in terms of who's able to say them. But that's not the case because the Mishnah explicitly says that Geirim cannot say the psukim of Meiser because they don't own land. So now we have a problem. Why can a ger recite the psukim of Bikurim, according to Rabbi Yehuda, because they're considered a descendant of Avraham, but they cannot recite the psukim of Meiser because they don't own land? What is the difference between those two readings? Now, according to the Rash's explanation, so again, we can explain these Mishnayas. The Mishnah in Bikurim is talking about the Kani convert. So he does own land. So according to Rabbi Yehuda, he could read the Psukim of Bikurim and he could also read the Psukim of Meiser. Whereas the Mishnah in Meiser Sheni is talking about regular converts who do not own land, non-Kani converts. So those people cannot read either set of Psukim, not Bikurim or Meiser Sheni. So there's no contradiction between the Mishnahs. They're each dealing with a different type of convert. But according to the Rambam that the Mishnah in Bikurim is talking about all converts, that they're able to read the Psukim according to Rabbi Yehuda. So what's the difference with the Psukim of Meiser that the convert is not able to say those Psukim because they don't own land? And another question about the Vidui of Meiser is that the Mishnah doesn't mention anything about women not reciting that Vidui. So it sounds like women could recite the Vidui. But again, we have the same problem. If the women can't recite the Psukim of Bikurim because they don't own land, so why are they able to recite the Psukim of Meiser, which has the same language about the land that Hashem gave us, but women don't own the land? So why are they able to recite those Psukim? So basically, Reb Moshe summarizes that everything here seems backwards. A ger could read the psukim of Bikurim, but not the vidui of Meiser, because he doesn't own land. Whereas a woman can read the vidui of Meiser, but not the psukim of Bikurim, again, because she doesn't own land. So all of this is very inconsistent, because there doesn't seem to be a consistent principle between the vidui of Meiser and the Bikurim. And the rules about women and gerim are backwards 
words in those two halachas. So in order to explain this halacha, Reb Moshe says that there are two elements to owning land in Israel. One is that a person is descended from Avraham because the land was given to Avraham and his descendants. So someone who's part of the group of descendants owns that land. And the Gemara in Baba Basra, Kofi Testament Aleph, says that Avraham really took ownership of the land. So this was a legitimate ownership of Eretz Yisrael already dating back to Avraham. So the people who own it now are the people who inherited it from him. Anyone else is not going to own the land. But Reb Moshe points out that when we say the land was inherited from Avraham, it does not follow the standard rules of inheritance. Ordinarily, if someone dies, their heirs divide up the estate and there's certain details of the halacha, how to give each heir what they deserve. But in this case, the land was not divided equally with all the heirs of Avraham. There is another generation that played a significant role. So there's a debate in the Gemara which generation was locked into the ownership of Eretz Yisrael. Was it the people who left Egypt or the people who entered Israel? But one of those generations restarted the inheritance process and it's their heirs who divide up Israel. So that's the first component of owning Eretz Yisrael that a person needs to be in this inheritance process even though overall it works differently than standard inheritance. But the theory of the idea is the same that a person owns land in Israel because they're one of the heirs. But then there is a second component that in order to own Israel, you need to capture it and settle it. So the Jews had to go in and capture and settle it before it was sanctified and before it became theirs. Even though it already belonged to Avraham for centuries, but that was not enough. The Jews in the times of Yehoshua needed to go and capture it. And the Yerusha, the Yeshiva, capturing and settling Israel was what sanctified it and made it theirs. So that's the second component of owning land in Israel. So both of these are required. There needs to be an inheritance from Avraham as well as the Jews capturing it. Now, Reb Moshe quotes that the Rambam in Trumas Aleph Hay writes that the first time the Jews sanctified Israel in the days of Yehoshua, they captured the land through war. And the second time in the days of Ezra, they captured it by moving there even though there wasn't a war. And both of those are valid ways of sanctifying the land either by capturing it in war or by settling in it and taking ownership by living in there, either of those fulfills the requirement of taking over the land. So those are the two different ways to fulfill the second requirement for ownership of Eretz Yisrael. But what's clear from this is that even though the heirs of Avraham own the land as an inheritance, but they do need to capture it and take ownership of it on their own. So now based on this, Reb Moshe suggests that anyone who's not part of the process of being able to capture Eretz Yisrael is also excluded from owning Eretz Yisrael. So one cannot own Eretz Yisrael just by being an heir if they're not part of the process of capturing and settling it. 
So now, says Rab Moshe, there are two categories of people who do not and cannot own land in Eretz Yisrael. One is people who are not heirs of Avraham, so they do not inherit the land that he owned. And second, even if they're heirs of Avraham, but they're not part of capturing the land, so they also are excluded from owning land in Israel. So women and Gerim reflect these two different categories. Women are heirs of Avraham, so they are included in the inheritance component. And Reb Moshe adds that even though women don't inherit when they're sons, so that's how most people understand women's exclusion, because they're not full heirs if there are brothers in the family. But Reb Moshe points out that he already explained that the laws of inheritance in this halacha are not the normal laws of inheritance. It works differently in terms of owning Israel. So in this halacha, women are considered full heirs of Avraham because they're one of his descendants. So the exclusion of women is because they don't go to war, so they're not included in the people who capture Israel. That's why they're excluded from ownership of Israel. And Reb Moshe quotes that his grandfather in the Beis HaLevi at the end of Chelek Beis also makes the same point that the reason women are excluded from ownership of Eretz Yisrael is because they don't capture it. They're excluded from that component of owning Israel. Now, Gerim are the exact opposite of women. They do go to war. So in terms of that component, they would be able to own Israel because they could be part of the war to capture and settle Israel. So that element is not going to exclude Gerim from ownership of Israel. The reason they're excluded is because they're not heirs. They're not descendants of Avraham. So they cannot own Israel because it's not part of their inheritance. They're not included in the descendants of Avraham. So women and Gerim are excluded in ownership of Israel for two different reasons. Gerim because they're not in the inheritance of Avraham and women because they're not in the war, but neither one of those groups is included in the other's exclusion. Now the Mishnah Lamelech in Hilspikurim Dalit Gimel quotes from the Maram Ben Chaviv based on a Medrash in Koheles and a Pasuk in Yechezkel that Gerim will own land in Israel in the future in Mashiach's times. So this is not talking about the land of Israel, which was promised to Avraham, because that section of land, the Torah already said that Gerim cannot own. So that's not going to change in Mashiach's times. This is talking about the extra land that the Jews get in Mashiach's times over and above the regular border of Israel. So in that additional land, Gerim could own. Now, women cannot own even in that additional land. Just like they don't own the regular land of Israel, so they're not going to own the additional land in the times of Mashiach. So what's the difference between Gerim and women in this regard? Says Rab Moshe, based on his conceptual framework, this makes perfect sense. Because the land that's added in the times of Mashiach over the regular borders of Israel has all the rules of the regular land of Israel, as the Rambam in Trumos Aleph Beis writes. So that land becomes like an extension of Eretz Yisrael. But there is one key difference between the original borders and the additional land. The original Eretz Yisrael belongs to the Jews as an inheritance from Avraham, as well as because they captured it. 
Whereas the additional land is clearly not an inheritance from Avraham. It did not belong to Avraham. The only reason the Jews get it in the future in Mashiach's times is because they capture it. So it only has one of the components of ownership. So now this explains why Gerim could own a portion of that land because they are included in the capturing of Eretz Yisrael. Now the original borders are not their inheritance so they can't own it. But the additional land in Mashiach's times only belongs to the Jews because they capture it and that includes the Gerim so they are able to own in that land as opposed to women who are excluded from capturing the land so they're also excluded from owning land in the additional lands in Mashiach's times because since it's captured by the Jews and they're not part of that so they cannot own that additional land either. So now Reb Moshe comes back to the original question, what's the difference between the Vidui Meiser versus the Psukim of Bikurim? And he very brilliantly explains that these two categories in Halacha reflect the two categories that he's been discussing, inheritance versus capturing. The language in Vidui Meiser is Asher Nasata Lanu Kasher Nishbata Lavoseinu, that Hashem gave us the land which he promised to our ancestors. So the Mishnah in Meiser Sheni, Hey Yud Gimel and Yud Dalid says that since it's only the land that was promised to our ancestors, so that excludes Gerim because they're not descendants of Avraham. So when it comes to Vidui Meiser, the key point is whether this person is included in the inheritance of Avraham or not. So that's why converts are excluded because they're not descendants of Avraham as opposed to women who are descendants of Avraham so they can recite Vidui Meiser because the whole issue of Vidui Meiser centers on who's included in the inheritance of Avraham and women are fully considered heirs of Avraham so they're able to recite the Vidui Meiser as opposed to Bikurim where the emphasis is a little different. The Torah says Asher Nasata Li that we thank Hashem for the land that he gave me. So it's focusing on each individual person who owns the land, not so much as an heir of Avraham, but through their own capturing of the land. So the key point when it comes to Bikurim is who's included in the capturing of the land. So that excludes women because they do not capture the land. They don't go to war. So that's why women cannot recite those psukim. As opposed to a ger who is able to go to war, so they are able to recite those psukim. There's only one other lingering issue that the psukim talk about Avosenu, our ancestors. So that's a debate between Rabbi Yehuda and the Rabbanan. But in terms of the ownership of the land, when it comes to Bikurim, the defining issue is whether the person is included in capturing the land, and Gerim are part of that. So this is a very brilliant approach from Reb Moshe to explain the differences between Meiser and Bikurim. Now, Reb Moshe has a little bit more to this piece, and basically he points out that the language of the Rambam and also the Sifri do not seem to fit in with his overall interpretation, and he even has some questions 
from the language of the Torah itself. So basically, he's trying to say that lanu, if the Torah says that the land was given to us, it's referring to the heirs of Avraham. And if it says nasata li, the land that was given to me, it refers to the people who captured the land. And that distinction is not reflected consistently in the language of the Sifri and the Rambam, where they derive the exclusions of women and gerim in regards to the vidui Meiser or the reading of Bikurim. So Reb Moshe tries to fit this idea into the language of these earlier sources. But this is the conceptual idea of Reb Moshe's piece that there are two components to owning Eretz Yisrael. One is being an heir of Avraham. The second is capturing the land. And there are two categories of people who are excluded from ownership, each from a different component. So Gerim capture the land, but they're not heirs of Avraham. And women are heirs of Avraham in this regard, but they don't go to war and capture the land. And the two different categories of exclusion are reflected in the different halachas of Vidui Meiser and the reading of Bikurim. Vidui Meiser depends on who's an heir of Avraham, not who captures the land. As opposed to Bikurim, which depends on who captures the land, not who's an heir of Avraham. Now, at the end of this piece, there is a note from Rabbi Yosef Dov, and he raises a question on his father's theory. So he points out that according to his father, when we say that someone is excluded from Vidui Meiser or Mikra Bikurim because they don't own land, it doesn't mean practically they don't own land, that they don't have a plot of land which belongs to them. It means that theoretically, they're excluded from ownership of the land. So it's not that the Gerim or the women don't practically own land. They may very well own land, but since they're excluded categorically from ownership of Israel, so therefore they either don't do vidui meiser or bikurim. That's the way Reb Moshe is understanding these halachas on a theoretical level, not on a practical level. So Rabbi Yosef Dov asks on this theory of his father because one of the groups of people that the Mishnah said do not read the Bikurim Sukim are Tumtum and Androginus, someone with an unclear gender. Now, in general, a Tumtum and an Androginus is a suffix. So we don't know if they're a man or a woman. So in this case, it should be a suffix whether they read the Psukim of Bikurim. Now, in a case of suffix, so the Gemara in Babi Basra, Pe'alaf Amud Beis, says that the Bikurim have to be sent with a messenger. So the Minchas Chinuch raises the issue, why do Tumtum and Androginus not have to send their Bikurim with a messenger because it's a suffix whether they can read the Psukim. So the Minchas Chinuch explains and Rabbi Yosef Dov says that this is the obvious answer, that even though in general a Tumtum and an Androginus is a suffix, but in this case it is not a suffix. It is a vadai, it is certain that they do not read the Psukim of Bikurim. Because since it was a suffix, whether they were a man or a woman, so they do not inherit the land. And since they don't practically own any land in Israel, so now it's a vadai that they do not own land and they don't read the psukim. So because the Tumtum and Androginus were a suffix originally, whether they should inherit land, but on a practical level that makes it that they do not own land in Israel, so now it's certain that they don't read the psukim of 
of Bikurim. Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, that only works if the question of ownership of the land in this halacha is a practical one. So then we can say that a tumtum and an androginus don't practically own land, so they don't read the psukim. But if it's a theoretical issue, so tumtum and androginus remain a suffix, even though practically they don't own land. But on a theoretical level, it's still a suffix whether they're included in ownership of the land or not. So now we're back to the question, why do they not need to send their bikurim with a shliach? So the halacha that tumtum and androginus bring their own bikurim and do not recite the psukim seems to contradict Reb Moshe's reading of the halacha that we're not talking about practical exclusion from the land, but we're talking about theoretical exclusion.